So you remember um, the stories we started off the year in, the parables. Um, of the many things that, that came out of them, one of the common themes was that we were needy people, right? And so just as we sang, um, I depend on you, we depend on you, we learned in the parables um, of Jesus that um, they were kind of in a spot where we just need to be needy. Like to enter into the kingdom of God, these parables about life with God and life with others, um, every character at some point recognized um, either willingly or circumstantially or maybe even kind of fought against the reality that they needed the life of someone else, a livelihood of another for their own life, right? They, they were in a place of need. And it seemed like neediness was kind of the, the, the main um, requirement for entering, experiencing the abundance of the kingdom. And so like we, we all find ourselves that we're super needy and like this neediness, maybe in, um, in our context uh, in America at this time and place, um, being needy might not sound like a good thing, right? We might kind of hear that as a derogatory thing to be needy. Um, we want to be independent. We want to be self-sustaining. We want to be uh, able to take care of ourselves. And some of that is, is good things, right? Some of that's growing up and wanting to be adults and, and all those kind of things. But the way that the scriptures tell us the story, being needy is not a place of, um, of desperation in the sense of like you're lower. Being needy is a natural place. And it's an honored place because the one who gives us what we need doesn't demean us, right? That's what we also discovered in the stories, right? That every character who is needy was loved, right? Even the one who wanted the father to die was loved and shown compassion, absurd compassion, absurd generosity. Even the one who thought that he could earn everything that he had in life, wanted to be self-sustaining, but really needed what the father had, even he was loved and invited to come in and to enjoy the, the generosity and the compassion of the Father. The laborers um, were loved and um, compassion was shown to them that even when, when um, there was maybe less work than needed their help, they were still invited to be participants in the kingdom. I mean, over and over again in all the stories, we find and we notice that each character found themselves loved sacrificially, generously, with humiliating compassion that the one who lavished, the giver of life, lavished this love upon them, this compassion upon them. And he didn't just love them like in a self-pity, in a pity kind of way, but he loved them in a way that actually dignified them, showed them that he assumed that they were competent to do with his life what he wanted them to do with it, to make the most out of his life with what they had in their own personhood. So we find that we're needy and that we're loved, but that we're also considered competent to be able to use the life that we've been given up from another. We need another's life. We're loved and given another's life and livelihood, and we're competent to be able to do something with it. I mean, it's pretty incredible, right? That God thinks that the life that he gives us in Jesus, that we're actually able to make the most of it, to put it to use, and find that in putting to use the life of Jesus in our own lives, living off the life of Jesus in our own lives, that we get to experience the abundance of him with us. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible to think about how God thinks about you, right? That he loves you and he thinks you're competent. And that in your competency, that he holds you to responsibility and accountability to that, right? I mean, think about all the stories that we read. Every single, every single person who came in to give an account to the master, the giver, the, the lord of the vineyard, or whatever it was, they all gave account of not what they did, but what was done with his life, what he gave them. Not, with, not just how they lived, but how they lived with what was his. His life that he gifted them already. And so this life with God gives us dignity, gives us love, gives us a place of responsibility and accountability. They all come together in this life with God. And that's what Jesus is after for us, right? I mean, that, that, that Jesus wants for us a life in which we recognize that we're needy, that we're loved, that we're given what we need to be able to live himself, and that we can do something with that and make the most of it. True life. 
That's what John keeps telling us. We read John chapter one, uh, I think every week in the month of January and we started February off with it. And so we're gonna read it one last time, just the introduction that John has to Jesus and listen to it from this perspective. Again, that there is no life in Jesus, but there's life in Jesus. And the life that we have in Jesus is ones who are needy, who are loved and who are considered competent. Here's what, what, how John describes Jesus to us. The word was first, the word present to God. God present to the word. The word was God in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through him. Nothing, not one thing came into being without him. What came into existence was life and the life was the light to live by. The light was a life to live by. Everything that came through him, everything that exists, exists in him, through him, for him, to him. And the way to live is to live in his light, to live in that reality. Jesus, the light, the life light was the real thing. Every person entering life, he brings into light. He brings into this reality of communion with God, into this reality of life in its true self. He was in the world and the world was there through him and yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made their true selves, their child of God selves. Those are the God born. We're loved, we're competent, and we're also a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. We're God-born. We're a part of the kingdom of God. In each story, the characters were both a part of a community that they were in, a larger community that took place in which their stories took place, but even more so, they were a part of the rule and reign of God, God's kingdom. The life itself, life with God himself. They came to know themselves, their true selves, not in isolation, but in relationship with the giver and one another. As a friend of ours said yesterday, the life that uh, we live in this expansive reality of God's kingdom, um, rather than being reduced to like a life of our little worlds, if we wanna live in the expansive reality of God's kingdom, it requires that our minds be renewed by sharing life together in Jesus, by beginning to recognize over and over again that it is in our life together that we're reminded of, we're encouraged, we're exhorted to live into something that's more true, our true selves, our God-born selves. We as a faith family exist and labor to mature for this maturity in us, right? That we want to, as a faith family, we come together so that we might grow up into the maturity of this life, into the life in Jesus. That's why we exist. That's why God's called us into relationship with him, into relationship with one another, so that we might encourage and build one another up into the maturity of what is true, Life in Jesus, our true lives in Jesus. Believing that our personal aim of maturity and wholeness of life in Jesus finds its fulfillment only in faith lived with others, worked out and built up through relationships and rhythms of life with fellow apprentices and spiritual companions. That's what we actually believe. That's what keeps us going together. That's what organizes us as a faith family. And it's this aspiration that I think Paul speaks to in Ephesians 4. He says this, that the aspiration of our and every faith family is to be ones who build up the body of Christ, the church, until we are all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's son. That's our goal, that's our aim. To build one another up until we're all moving rhythmically and easily, naturally, habitually, regularly, rhythmically with each other in relationship with each other, efficient and graceful in what? In response to God's son. Not just that we have community and we have friendship, but that we have community and friendship that's birthed out of, that finds alignment with the rhythm and relationship of God as ones who are responsive to God's son. To full-grown maturity, as Paul continues, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful, deceitful schemes. Why? Because God wants us to grow up into Jesus, Paul says. Jesus, who is the head, 
to know the whole truth, the truth of what reality actually is, right? That God rules and reigns, and he does so with loving compassion. That he calls us into life, sacrificially giving his own self so that we might have life. And that in that responsibility of what we've been given, we get to experience, only by being responsible with what we've been given, his life, do we get to experience the fullness of the life that he has intended for us. To know the whole truth and tell that whole truth in love. To live like Christ in everything. Jesus Christ, he keeps us in step with each other. He's the one who draws us together and whom we're drawn together in. His very breath and blood flow through us nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in love. And that's really what we've been trying to expound on over the last month, right? That God's desire for us is to grow up into maturity, to expand our world and and enter into the expansive reality of his world, and that our life together really is about helping one another do that walking alongside of one another until we get to see that fulfillment to where we're moving rhythmically and easily together in response to God's Son, right? And so we, we, we showed some clip art, and, um, and just as a reminder, and because we want this, I want the, the clip art to, to be the thing. Um, no, um, like the, the reality is, like our lives tend to orient around ourselves, right? We're, 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 we live in a pretty small world, um, um, usually it's the world of our own heads. It's the world of our own relationships, our own work, our own uh, family. Like, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, we just, we're, we're pretty small people, right? Like, we don't have the ability to live everywhere and everything, right? And so we live kind of in this small world in which we tend to move around by whatever is moving in the moment and kind of, and kind of be, that becomes the center of our lives, right? That, that tends to be the thing that moves and tosses us. So sometimes that's work, sometimes that's family, sometimes that's activities or passions, sometimes that's career, sometimes that's community. But in some ways, Paul would say, as we just read in Ephesians 4, that that's kind of like being like a child. When our world is that small, we're like an unattended child. We just kind of move as things move. We flow as things flow. We're not really necessarily going anywhere. We don't have a really a whole lot of things to build ourselves on. And what we do build ourselves on, what we do center our worlds around, tends to either move in the seasons and flex in the seasons, or we find that it gets washed away when something dramatic happens. Traumatic happens, right? But here's the thing. Like when we discover that there's a bigger world, there's a kingdom. There's a world in which God loves us and rules and reigns, and where, where we're needy of him and he gives us all that we need, we enter into a bigger world. And so we long to live in a world that's more sure, more certain. We're not tossed everywhere by what's happening in our own lives in any given moment, but we're grounded in this greater reality. And so we tend to say, how do we stay in that reality? And we talked a few few weeks ago about, well, we, we come into a place like this and we do this thing called church and then we go and live in these other spheres, right? So we, 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 try to, we try to make sure we've got it all figured out and all right on who God is and what God's doing and how God's working and that I'm in on what God's doing and how God's working. And then we can go out into our family and workplaces and homes and neighborhoods and live like Jesus wants us to live. And in some ways, it's kind of like helicopter parenting, right? If unattached, we just kind of float around in our mood by every moment. When we make this thing, this thing called church, when we make this thing called, um, um, uh, this thing that we call church, the kind of centering deal of our reality, we tend to get a little overprotective, right? We tend to, we tend to um, determine what's the best way to reach everybody. What's the best way to serve everybody? What's the best way to do this? We start to make outlines and processes and programs and all these kind of things, all with good intentions, right? We want to live in this expansive kingdom, but it's like having a tutor who was never really a parent, but who knows that they're gonna, like, the parent's gonna come home, and so they're, they're like, they don't want the kids to have donuts. And so they're not gonna give the kids donuts, right? They, they wanna make sure that the kids eat right, so they cut everything up into little pieces so that their kids can digest it. And like, we're kind of helicopter parented in our own religion. It's what religion, it, it gives us a little bit of an expansiveness, 
into God's kingdom, but it keeps us from getting, living in the life that God actually has for us, in the fullness of it. It's not wholly bad, but we're not really prepared to be grown-ups, right? It doesn't necessarily prepare us to live life outside of it. It makes us uber-dependent on those things for life. But, but who have we said is, that we're dependent upon for life? Who are we dependent upon for life? Is it the church or is it Jesus? Well, it's Jesus, right? Like, and we, and we say yes and amen to that, but, but don't we find ourselves at times feeling like we need all the things that we call church in order for us to have life, to live life? Like, it's like a kid who's, who's growing up and trying to like come in this morning making eggs and, and finding that it's not so easy to scramble eggs, um, at least not so easy to scramble eggs and not get it everywhere and burn it and all that kind of stuff, right? And so he needs mom to come and save him. But no, he doesn't. He needs to keep practicing at it, keep getting, getting better at it. Mom, mom can kind of be there to tell him some things, but mom's not doing it for him, right? Like church is meant to be like that. Our relationship with one another is meant to be like that, to help us be able to live life in Jesus, not to be the one who goes and scrambles all the eggs for us, right? At some point, we all meant to mature. That's what Paul said, that we're built to build each other up into maturity. And so we've been talking about the last month how we do that, that all of life is, Je- is in Jesus. But as our life expands in the loving dignity of God's life, we, Lord willing, begin to see that all of life is the ground in which we mature. All life, whole life, full, practical, authentic, God-born life is from, in, and to Jesus. And it's what our relationships and rhythms as the church are meant to encourage and equip us to experience together. It's what the relationships and rhythms of the church are meant to encourage and equip us to, together to experience in the fullness. All of life in Jesus. Our life is not segmented into categories, nor does it center on our faith family, because both frameworks shrink the kingdom of God. Both frameworks shrink who we are, shrink and keep us immature, as the writer of Hebrews would say rather than ones who learn together, mature together to discern and to live out the life that God has for us. Again, not always negatively in the sense of like an intentional negativity, but that's what happens. And so we've said, okay, instead of that, if that's what tends to happen if we center our life on self, we're like unattended children and we're by God's grace alone, do we survive? Like, by, like you know, you leave your kids at home for an hour and you come back and they're still there. Like, hey, by God's grace, we made it. Um, or like helicopter parent, where never, the kids are never alone. They always have everything done for them. They know what they're supposed to do. Everything's set up. The programs are right there. They just got to follow all the steps. Like neither one of those things allow us to live mature. Never allow us to live fully. Instead, as a faith family, we say we want to help one another abide in their, what is true, in the grace and truth of God with us the word of Jesus in us and us in Jesus, that we want to encourage and equip one another to do that well. And that in our abiding, we don't just rest in the grace and truth of Jesus, but we respond to it, right? That's what Paul said, right? That we move rhythmically in unison together in response to God's son. So it's not just that we know that God loves us and calls us competent and gives us his life and way of life as we just saying the way, the truth, and the life to live, but that we do so in response to him. And we encourage each other to respond to him, to obey, to look like Christ in everything, loving one another and neighbor as we have been loved. Because why? Because that's how Jesus told us to do. <laughs> Remember in John 15, the way Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, what he tells his disciples? He tells them this. He says, I am the true vine. We just sang it just a minute ago, right? I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, I'm the true vine. I'm the source of life. There is no life apart from life in the vine. There's not life in Jesus. There's life in Jesus, and that's it. Everything apart from Jesus is death. It's not life. You're dead. We're dead. We have no life. We may exist, but we don't live, right? But I'm the vine. I'm the source of life. And my father is the vine dresser. He's the one who takes care of the vine, life. He's the one who ensures the fullness of life, the longevity of life, the fruitfulness of life, the care of life. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Everything that comes out of me that isn't real life, 
the full life, life as it's meant to be, as I mean it to be, as he means it to be, as the vine dresser, he removes. If the branch doesn't bear fruit, he prunes it. He takes it away. If the branch doesn't bear the fruit that he desires, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Not just as a judgment, right? Not just as a condemnation, but so that it might actually bear all that he means it to be, because he's the vine dresser. He knows what the fruit, what fruit should come from the vine. I mean, how cool is that, right? That he, that he takes away what is less so that we might have more. Even if it seems like what's less is enough for us. He takes it away so that we might have more. More of what he desires for us. More fruit. And then Jesus says this, just in case um, um, we get caught up in the uh, um, getting cut off kind of metaphor. He says, already you're clean. Already you're grafted in. That's the, the context, the Jewish context of clean. Already you're a part of this. You're inside this. You're not outside of this. You're inside of this. You're connected to the vine. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already my life is flowing in through you because of the word I've spoken to you. So that's true. That's what's true of you. That's what's true of us. That's what's true of our lives. So Jesus says, abide in me. Live in me. Take up residence in me. And I in you. As I take up residence in you. As I live in you. Jesus lives in you. That's amazing reality, right? That God lives in us. We are not God, but that God abides in us. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. How can you live unless you're connected to life? How can you live a life that lasts, a life that's fruitful, a life that's, that's full and whole unless you're connected with the source of life? A branch just by itself is just gonna sit there and wither and die. Maybe a cool looking branch, maybe it gets carved up into something that's kind of awesome walking stick or something, but it's not going to bear any fruit. It's not going to reproduce. It ends. It doesn't continue. But Jesus says, if you abide in me and listen, and my words abide in you, the word that I spoke to you that, was, that was, made you clean, the truth of what I revealed of who you are and who God is and how God's working and what God's doing, your neediness and God's love and compassion and, and um, a dignifying uh, way in which he, he has for you, Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, that you live a whole and full life. And so prove that you are my apprentices. How do we prove that we're apprentices of Jesus? We live the life that God intends for us, that God has for us, the full life that God envisions for us. That's how we know, people will know that we're apprentices. That's how we glorify God. Not by producing ourselves, but by abiding in his word, living life in the word, through the word, that bears a life that God has for us. As my father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. Abide in me, I abide in you. If I abide in you, my word abides in you. Abide in my love because I abide in the love of the Father. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How do we live out this life? How do we experience the fullness of what God has for us in the affection of God, in the words of Jesus, in the way of Jesus? Well, we obey. We respond. Abide, keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, I know we don't like the, the commandment part. <laughs> we don't like the obey, obey part. We like to cool. Jesus gives us a way of life and Jesus gives us love. But we don't always like the responsiveness side of it, right? But think about it. Jesus lived his entire life in response to the Father. That's how he lived his life. His full life, his life that is life was in response to the Father. And then he says this, and this is really helpful for us. What is the thing that I command you? It's not go to church. It's not study the Bible. It's not serve the poor. It's not... All the things that we kind of list, right? Not bad things, not unhelpful things, not, but not religious things. What he says is simple. That you love one another as I have loved you. Not just that you love one another generally, have a general affection for one another, 
but love as he's loved. And how did he love? Intimately, sacrificially, purposefully, also responsively to the Father. He loved each one of his disciples. And just a couple of verses later, he'll call them friends, right? He says, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And why do I call you friends? Because I've let you in on all that the Father is up to. I've helped you see who you are in God and what God is up to in you. That's how I loved you. That's what I've done for you. And that's, our, that's what he commands us to do, to help one another see who we are in God and what God's called us to, what God is up to, to seek together and to, to determine and find and help one another grow into the fullness of all that God intends for us. Not even what we can envision for each other, but what God envisions for us. And listen, the relationships and rhythms we typically call church are meant to reinforce this, to remind us of this, to redirect us and even summon us to the reality of our true selves in relation to the Father. That's why we exist as a people together, life together. All the things we do have at their foundation the intention to help us discover and respond to the grace and truth of God with us. To be responsible for what we've been given, life in Jesus, and to encourage that responsibility in one another. Right? As old Spider-Man was told, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Deidre and I went and watched Spider-Man last night. We got an impromptu date, thanks to my parents. And, uh, and so we took advantage and went to the movies. And, uh, um, but the reality is this, right? Like, it's kind of a joke. You know, Spider-Man, if you know anything about the Spider-Man comics and movies, like he was, he, he was told that he has great power, so with that power comes great responsibility. Well, in some ways, like, like we've been given something extremely great in Jesus, his life. And with that comes a responsibility to do something with it. Now it's different, right? Like Spider-Man's power came from science and this weird bug that bit him, right? And what he does with it is, is in the new movie, it's actually kind of, kind of cool, like in the new movie, what he does with it is he saves life and doesn't take it. I don't want to ruin it if you haven't seen it. But like that's the whole, the whole idea is that he exists with his power and responsibility to save life, ensure that life continues and not ends. And he does it through science and through weird, shooty web things, right? We do it, as Paul would say, through the power of Christ in us. That we strive for the same thing, for life and not death. For life in its fullest. Not just in us, but for others. And that we encourage one another and are responsible for one another in that. Not to do it for one another. We're not helicopter parents, right? But to encourage that, equip one that, help one another live into the reality and mature into the reality of life in Jesus. To grow up together in Jesus. To become robust in love for one another and neighbor. We are, in some ways, meant to help one another abide. That's all that we're doing. Our last couple of weeks, we've moved kind of from this big picture of life in Jesus into kind of the minutia of abiding, how we help one another abide, the relationships that are required to help us rest in, abide in, live in the word of God and the love of God so that we might be responsive to God with us. And we've exposed our expectations of these, <laughs> our limitations and the reality of the realities of these relationships. And we've encouraged, hopefully, participation receiving and giving that's, that's mutual in these kind of relationships. We've exhorted one another to the purpose of maturing together in Jesus, that these relationships and gospel community and in sacred and spiritual friendships, that, that's what we're after, is to help one another mature into Jesus. And hopefully that's helped us see at least to some extent that the fruitfulness of these relationships comes not through some self-production, mere attendance, or even an overvaluing and over-esteeming of them, but instead through a shared focus. The fruit of gospel community and sacred companionship, spiritual friendships, comes through our shared focus, our attuning of attention to the affection, word, and work of Jesus in and through one another. 
The fruitfulness of life together comes through how we focus our life together on. What we focus our life together on. Being in Jesus. Becoming like Jesus. Doing what Jesus did. Attuning ourselves to his attention and his affection. And as we grow in our ability to minister to one another, to know the whole truth and to tell it in love, we mature as the body of Jesus. We move rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, or at least that's our hope, right? Like I, don't, I think Paul wrote, Paul wrote Ephesians um, to people who, um, who we know had issues. Jesus, is, Jesus kind of points out some of those issues in Revelation, but it's the one letter he writes to a church that he doesn't try to correct something. So he's not writing to some people who, like he's not writing to correct an issue. So he's kind of given an ideal picture of what life is like. So it's something for us to achieve, to strive to achieve, but something we may not ever get fully what right, right? Like we, we may all kind of, we may, instead of moving rhythmically and easily with each other, may at times move really well and at times move kind of clunky, right? Like, then we, some of us may be moving really rhythmically while others are like dancing to a whole different beat. Right? And so, like, some of that kind of happens, right? So there's this kind of ideal that Paul paints for us. But the reality is that we're all striving for it. And the striving for it isn't just some, some picture of functionality, but is a responsiveness to life with God. To do the things of Jesus, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus. But not only do our relationships help us with that, our personal and collective rhythms do the same. They are meant to help us become fully, uniquely, and collectively who God has created and gifted us to be in Jesus. Each of the practices that we expound as a faith family, um, these that, that align with our goals of apprenticeship, they're, they're simply tools. They're just tools. Silence and solitude, Sabbath, fasting, lamenting, feasting, the basic rule, granting our identity, hearing God, becoming a faith family, all these things are ways in which we help one another tools that we use to hone life in Jesus together, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. These are not behaviors for the sake of behaviors or means of earning, but rather they're holy habits for the cultivation of our true, authentic, purposeful, and fruitful life with God and one another. Practices exercise both in personal rhythms, our own individual lives, and in our lives collectively. And so like, even when we talk about what we do as a faith family, even when we wonder like, so um, what is it that I need to be doing as a follower of Jesus? It isn't trying to earn something, but it's trying to cultivate the very same thing that our relationships are trying to cultivate. A fullness and maturity of life in Jesus. And these are ways, tools that we use to help us do that. And we don't just do it individually, we do it together. And so let's together do that, right? But why don't we go ahead and practice? Practice um, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, so that we might know the whole truth and tell the truth to one another. And so one of the habits that we do, one of the holy habits that we partake in individually and collectively um, as a faith family to help us become like Jesus in everything is we employ the faith practice known as the prayer of examine. And examine with E-N, not I-N-E. We're not talking about an exam like a test to confirm what we know and don't know, like to see how, how what we score. Nor are we talking about an exam like a physician's exam or a scientific exam or a psychological analysis to figure out all the details of life and, and weigh and contrast all the different things that we're doing. Instead, this reflective prayer time comes from the Latin word referring to the weight indicator on a balance scale. You know, a balance scale has on one side weights and measurements to say how much something is that tells the accurate account of what this thing is over here. So if it's a pound, the weight scale to be balanced would have a pound over here. So it's not judging, like in the sense of like this isn't true over here. It's saying, listen, like this is how we know accurately what this is. It paints an accurate picture of the thing on the other side of the scale, right? It gives us an accurate assessment of what is on the scale. Paul uses the same terminology in, in Ephesians chapter four, right, at, right before this prayer that we, or this kind of vision that we had for life together. He talks about living in balance with, measurement with the life that we've been given. So in other words, the prayer of examine, the weighted side of it, 
the examined side of it is the life of Jesus, life with Jesus, life in Jesus, in our life. And is our life lived in Jesus, with Jesus, or is there something off? Like it's just, it's helping us see, are we living the life that we've been given fully, right? Again, it's not a test. It's not an analysis. It's helping us recognize that we've been given life in Jesus and helping us see, are we really living that life in Jesus? Are we focused on that life in Jesus? Are we able to see and recognize what's true? That that what balances us out is our life in Jesus. And so the um, uh, famed spiritual director and theologian Richard uh, Foster once said, um, how very strange is it that the prayer of examine has been lost to, um, to we who live in an age of obsessive introspection. We're always analyzing ourselves, trying to figure out what's wrong with us or wrong with others and judging and all those different kinds of things. He's, he says it's strange that we've lost this practice. It's actually possible today, he argues, for people to go to church services week in and week out for years without having a single experience of spiritual examine. I mean, I don't know about you, but growing up, I never, we never went through anything like this. It, it wasn't... Like, it wasn't that we weren't taught to ask the Lord to search us. It wasn't that we were taught to consider how we are living and all those kind of things. But together, collectively, we are never a part of anything like this. And Foster says, what a tragedy that is. What a loss. That not just individually are we meant to go and to examine our lives, have our lives examined by God. But collectively, we don't get to experience that. And collectively, when we don't get to experience it, it's a loss. He says, no wonder people today are weak. No wonder they are barely hanging on. No wonder they are weak and barely hanging on because they don't get to live in the reality of what is true. That their life is in the life of Jesus. But here's the thing that we gotta note, and Foster explains this about the prayer of examine. It's not that we are examining our lives. It's not a self-examination, but rather we are asking the spirit of God to examine us. Because here's the thing, if we self-examine, we always, always, always either find that, that we are tipped way too high and we're like, we become self-righteous. Now we got this, we're good. Or we're tipped way too low and we become full of self-pity. Like I'm not good enough. I don't have enough. That's not what we're after here, remember? This isn't a test. This isn't an analysis. This is a help us see that life is lived with the life that we've been given. So we'll follow Paul's example and ask the Spirit to help us see ourselves and others and God with clarity. He says this in 1 Corinthians, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And what's been freely given us by God? The life of Jesus. Our life in Jesus. And so we're going to ask the Spirit in the next few moments to help us see clearly God with us. That our life has been lived in the past week in every single way in relationship to Him, through Him, from Him, to Him. Or we've missed it. <laughs> right? Like maybe we, maybe we didn't see it. Maybe we failed to see it or maybe we purposely turned our back from it. But everything in the last week, everything in the last few hours, everything in the last week has been lived in relationship to God. Your life has been lived with Jesus. And so the prayer of examine has kind of two basic sides. There's two sides of a door is what Foster calls it. And the first side of the door that you see as you go into the prayer of examine is examine of consciousness. That is, where we discover how God has been present to us throughout the week, the day or the week, and how we have responded to his loving presence. So that's what we're going to do first. So here's what I want you to do. There is, there's, there's paper, I think, on every row. There's some notes. So you may want to take notes, um, not like notes from what I'm saying, but notes of what you hear from God. There's extra pins up here if you need extra pins. But we're going to get into a quiet spot. We're going to take over the next probably 15 minutes, we're going to do kind of three movements. We're going to examine our consciousness of where we're attentive to God with us, 
looking back over the week before, we're going to talk about where we maybe have missed it. We're going to ask God for, for vision for tomorrow. And then at the end, we're going to get into groups and kind of share some of those things. So I encourage you to take notes of what you hear from the Lord, to write these things down, not as judgments or as, as things like that, but simply as a way for you to be attentive to, attuned to the reality of God with you and in areas where we might miss him. As uh, Annie Dillard once said, like we, we tend to not visualize what we don't verbalize, right? And so sometimes like, like we gotta write some of this stuff out. So like if the Lord kind of puts upon your mind, um, puts upon your heart like a particular instance or an emotion or a relationship, just write those things down. It just helps us draw our attention to the reality of God with us, right? Because that's, that's what we're after, right? We're attuning ourselves to the reality of what's true, that God is with us and for us in Jesus, always, and that life is meant to be lived in response to him. So let's start this by this by quieting our hearts. So close your eyes in your space where you're at. Take three deep breaths. And as you breathe in, imagine the air filling your lungs is the presence of God with you. Imagine. Because remember what Paul said in just the verse before, that the spirit we've been given isn't the spirit of this world, but the spirit of God. Imagine yourself breathing in God's spirit. It may seem strange, but it's true. God fills you. Breathe in three deep breaths. Let each breath fill you with the fullness of God's presence to you and in you. Now, as the Spirit of God quiets you, as your body is immersed in, inside and out with God's presence, just begin to think through the week before, this past week, the highlights of the week. Allow the Holy Spirit to help you review your week from beginning to end. Start last Monday, come up to today. Identify God's presence and provision throughout the week. So take note especially of those encounters and experiences where you are most aware of God's nearness. As you think about your week, write down those moments that you are aware that God was with you. It could just be a word, one word that reminds you of God with me in the office, in conversation with my, my, my kids, um, in, a, in a quiet moment on the way to work. Take note of those times where you're responsive to the Spirit's leading. Maybe where God put on your heart to call someone, to text someone, to do something, to say something. Take note of those times where you are most like Jesus in your actions. Gentle, compassionate, courageous. Take note of those moments when your soul was at peace. Where were you? What were you doing? There'll be some questions up on the screen that can help you if you start to kind of wonder throughout the week. Questions like, what are you most grateful for? Where, when were you most responsive to the Spirit's leading? What patterns or habits helped you be like Jesus? If you need those questions to help prompt you, go look at those questions. We're gonna take three minutes to sit in this kind of consciousness. So you may not get through the whole week, but start last Monday and begin to write down those moments, those places, those people you were with when you were most aware of God's presence and provision this week.
hopefully you've been able to at least point out a couple of times where you were aware of God's presence, responsive, where you were like Jesus, where you were at peace, and you've made note of those locations, those people you were with, what you were doing. Um, there's a second part of um, the examine that's the other side of the door. So we enter the door recognizing God's presence with us, the kind of invitation to the reality of God with us. But as we kind of come in, we kind of see the other side of the door is, yeah, we don't always kind of live up to expectations, right? We don't always live aware and responsive. We don't always live like Jesus, and we're not always at peace. And there's a truth to that, um, that we're not where we want to be yet, that we are, as one pastor said, always arriving. Like, that is our state of being, right? Until the Lord comes and all is made new fully and completely, we're always going to be arriving. There's always going to be the other side of the door. And so we learn to pray the way the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, because remember what Jesus said of us in John 15, that already you're clean. That even as we enter the door and we are entering into the, the abiding presence of the Lord and we're not fully who we are yet, we know that we're loved, that we're called competent, that we're part of something bigger because of the words he's spoken to us, because of the life that he's given us. And so we can pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurting ways within me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist prays this prayer with not anxiety and trepidation, but excitement. Those exclamation marks are, are original, right? They're, they're there because he knows, the psalmist who wrote this knows that God loves him, is for him, has formed him and called him has purposed him, and that his life is lived in and through the life of God. So he can ask the Lord to examine him, to search him. And the psalmist's prayer is what leads us into our second movement. So once again, let's just quiet our hearts, close your eyes for just half a second, take three deep breaths, breathing in still the Spirit of God in you, letting the Spirit of God fill you Breathe in his loving presence. And now, ask the Spirit, in context of Psalm 139, to help you look at your week that we've just gone through before. And this time, as the Spirit searches your heart and brings to your memory those moments, take note, where you were least aware or even ignoring God's presence. Or maybe you didn't even think about God with you. Or you knew that God was pressing and prodding, but you chose not to be responsive. Or even those times where you rejected the Spirit's leading, when you were prompted to do something, say something, not do something, not say something, and rejected the Spirit's leading. When you were least like Jesus in your actions and attitudes, in those encounters and experiences when your soul was anxious and unsettled, where were you? What were you doing when your soul was anxious and unsettled? Take note of those things. Again, there'll be questions up on the screen to help you as you kind of reflect through these weeks. Again, we're asking not out of a sense of trying to measure up, to, to, um, to examine so that like, we can see that we're way off. No, like we know that we're not fully there yet. So we pray with the psalmist, help us to be there fully. And the only way that we can be there fully is to let the Lord help us see what we've missed. Right? Not in condemnation, but in pruning so that his life might be built fully. The fruit of his life might come out in, the, in our lives. So we're going to take three minutes and we're going to pray for the Spirit to help us see where we've missed.
Paul reminds us in Romans that, um, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for us. For God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, sometimes in when we're remembering and we're recognizing where we've missed it, our tendency is to, um, again, kind of fall back, default back into the, oh, we're not, we're not earning, we're not living up to the expectations um, of, of God, and so therefore we've missed, we've missed out. Um, and yet we recognize that it's Christ who died for us so that he can prune and make life through us full and whole, and so when we don't just go through the door into this abiding relationship, we don't just examine where God's invited us and we've recognized his awareness and we see what we've missed, but we also rest in this reality, this truth, the grace and truth of, of Jesus' life, grace, succeeding grace perpetually that John talks about, that that's where we take up residence. And so therefore we can not just examine, but we can pray for tomorrow. We can look forward to the next day. And so like, if you're practicing this, this, this practice in your own life on a regular basis, like on a daily basis, I would suggest keep it into like 15 minutes because you're not trying to get through every detail of everything. You're simply trying to call to your mind God's with, where God's with you to let the Spirit show you where you've missed it and to rest in tomorrow that, that you'll have all that you need in Jesus, even as a sinner who didn't quite live up. And so for the last two minutes, before we talk with one another for a couple minutes, we reflect on these two questions and write down your answers. Is there anything, a relationship with anyone, where I need to take a step forward in restoration tomorrow or this week? Was there something that came up in your time with the Lord? Something, an area maybe that you missed, a relationship that causes anxiousness, that the Lord's inviting you to knowing the truth, speak the truth in love. Is there something that the Lord wants to redeem this week? Is there anything God is asking you to start doing, to stop doing, to start believing or thinking, to stop believing or thinking, to commit to or to stop committing to? Is there any, did you notice in the awareness any consistency of I was doing these things and I was really aware of God? And so maybe the Lord's inviting you to do that more or more regularly, or more often? Or did you notice in the lack of awareness, I was doing these things and was very unaware or purposefully rejecting the Spirit? Maybe I should stop those things. Maybe the Lord would have me do something differently. And maybe not. But it's an invitation into tomorrow to believe that the life that you've been given, God wants you to do something with. So what would he have you do? So spend just two minutes just asking those questions you don't have to have an answer, but just ask the Lord, ask the Spirit, and write down what he gives you.
So what, what makes this a collective practice is two parts. One, that we do it together um, so that we're all aware that we're doing it. But then the second part is simply that we share. <laughs> we open up. And listen, like, so what we're going to do is we're going to break up into groups. Um, and I, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to share one of these things. Just one. Um, you can choose which one you want to share. Or if you really want to, you don't have to share. There's, there's room in that. But I would encourage you to share either a place, person, mindset, action in which you were aware and responsive to God with you. Or in a place maybe where you felt like the Lord helped you see where you were, weren't aware or that you were not responsive. Or maybe even something, if anything, that God is asking you to do this week. As an encouragement to one another, as a reality that we're a part of something more than just ourselves, and as a way to continue to build together up a rhythm of moving and being easily with one another, right? The only way we get good at that is if we take a little bit, be a little bit vulnerable and just share. So you're only gonna get like three minutes to do it, so there's no expounding, there's just speaking, right? So get into groups. You can get in groups as, as large as six and at least somebody that you didn't come with um, of two, but at least somebody you didn't come with if, you're just, if there's just two of you, okay? And then share those things and I'll call us back into communion together, okay? So just share one of them. Break them into groups. You got three minutes. One minute. So if you haven't got to share yet, one minute.
All right. Um, I know you can keep going, and I hope you do keep going after lunch or after this into lunch. Um, but do this for for me, if you would. Go ahead and grab your communion elements in front of you, in the chairs in front of you, or behind you. You know, these, these things that you're holding in your hand, is, as much as we joke about the little wafer and juice or whatever, they're symbols of the truth that we're receiving from one another, right? These are tangible, tangible symbols of what is actually true. They're tactile reminders of who we are and whose we are. They remind us that Jesus keeps us in step with one another. It's his life that is life in us. That every breath and, and his very breath and blood flow through us, nourish us so that we'll grow up healthy in God, robust in love. The bread is broken like his body was broken. So that as believers, our body might be whole. The crimson juice was poured out, his blood poured out so that our life might actually be life that lives forever in him. So will you stand with me? And we're gonna read aloud, confess together the grace and truth undergirding these symbols. And we'll receive them together with open hearts of what God has gifted us in Jesus until belief becomes a way of life. We'll say what we believe until we actually believe it and live it, right? So let's say it together. <clears throat> 